I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Town's conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner from Kansas City, and joining me today is my friend Daniel Harrigus, senior editor for Strong Towns. Welcome back, Daniel. Thanks, Abby. Good to be back on with you. I feel like it's been a few months. I know it has been a few months, and I hear that you've been on baby duty recently. How's parenting going? Permanently on baby duty, um, (laughs) and it's a lot of fun. And she is running around like a maniac and picking up sticks in the yard and then exchanging them for bigger sticks. And that that is hobby number one right now. What is the biggest stick that I can wave around screaming? That is the life of a 15 month old. (sighs) <sighs> if only things could be that simple forever. <laughs> well, today we're going to talk about something that is kind of complex and very interesting to me. It is an article that's published in Slate magazine by Henry Grabar called Condos Are in Uncharted Territory. So some li- listeners may have heard about the recent building collapse that took place in Surfside, Florida, a town north of Miami Beach. The disaster occurred in the middle of the night on June 24th, destroying 55 of the complex's 136 units. As of this week, I believe that the death toll nears 50 people and more than 100 people are still unaccounted for. This will likely be the deadliest building accident in U.S. history at this point. This is a developing story, so, you know, it's a very horrible tragedy and Before we talk about anything, I just want to say that my heart goes out to the families of the people who have been injured or killed or who are missing. So we hope that um, everybody is recovered safely um, at this point. What the article brings up is this insight that we are faced with the first generation of the American condominium experiment that began 60 years ago. These condos are reaching the end of their first maintenance life cycle. And there's a concern that many condo owner associations have not adequately prepared themselves for the true cost of building maintenance. The condo association in this story for this building had an engineer's report in 2018 that warned of major structural damage that needed to be dealt with in the uh, quote unquote near future, which would cost the condo owners a combined $15 million in deferred maintenance expenses. As the article points out, this represents a fundamental failure of condo governance that mirrors what Strong Towns talks about with local governments. In fact, the author wrote that this condo board is American local governance in a nutshell. So obviously, there's the Strong Towns connection, and it it mirrors what you guys talk about at Strong Towns very, very well in kind of a spooky way. Deferred maintenance seems to be this ongoing theme of the 2000s. We think of deferred maintenance when it comes to the public side of things, talking about roads, bridges, public facilities like schools. But this is essentially an accounting and governance issue that the private sector is not immune from. Uh, Failure to set up long-term systems for accounting and building maintenance 
could very much look like a Ponzi scheme when uh, current unsuspecting owners are left holding the bag um, that should have been paid for over several decades. So th- this is a fascinating article because it really does show that that we're seeing similar issues of deferred maintenance play out, not just for cities, but also for these uh, some of these condo associations. So I really just want to get your initial response to this, Daniel. Is this something that you guys have been thinking about at Strong Towns? Yeah. You know, the article in Slate really kind of did our, our work for us in explicitly um, citing Strong Towns and Chuck Marone's work and making the connection to the insolvency of local governments as that mounts over generations and over the life cycles of their infrastructure. The deferred maintenance problem, there's there's sort of a problem of human nature exacerbated by a problem of institutions. You know, humans have the ability, the, the seemingly limitless ability to be short-sighted, to want to minimize our costs now, to want to maximize sort of the perks for us now. You know, you're you're living in a condo and you've got all these bills. You've got your your mortgage, you've got your whatever. The bill that you can control, in a sense, is your condo association fees because you have a vote for the board of the condo association. And so there's a strong institutional incentive for, you know, the person running for that position to be the one who says, who who delivers the good news, who says, mm-hmm. we're going to keep your <laughs> fees low, we're going to stay out of your hair, and hey, we're going to get you some nice new furniture for the pool deck. And no one is malicious here. You know, there isn't a villain in this story who chose to bury the engineer's report. It's not clear when you read it that, like, anyone said, you know, oh, we we know that this is a life-threatening risk and we are going to make the deliberate decision to ignore it right now. It's not that cut and dry. But there are these institutional incentives to defer costs to the future in favor of this real kind of presentism. And that is mirrored by what you see in local government as an institution. That That parallel, I think, between the condo association or the HOA and the local government, where you've got a whole bunch of different actors with different motivations and the time frame in which they have any skin in the game is different. You know, elected officials who are in office for a short time don't have a whole lot of incentive to make sure they're setting aside enough for long-term maintenance, to make sure they're making decisions that will prove fiscally prudent 40, 50, 60 years down the road. They're not rewarded in the near term for doing that. And that exact same thing is paralleled in the governance structure of a condominium. Yeah, I, I think that the article broke down the the primary causes of deferred maintenance of condos that I think probably applies to cities too in some ways. Basically, the three points they make is that condo associations are not professional building managers as number one. The second is that their interest is short term, so that the article actually cites that half of all condos are resold uh, in less than a decade, so pretty short ownership there. And then the third is that social pressure and voting rules make it hard for neighbors to impose big assessments for repairs. When you are aware of the strong town's perspective around deferred maintenance and public liabilities, it really doesn't come at much of a surprise that these similar dynamics play out at the condo scale. This is really a human nature issue and a great example of temporal discounting, which you guys have talked about in the past. And that basically refers to when individuals perceive the desired results in the future as less valuable than results in in the 
present. So it's why people have long-term financial issues or don't exercise or smoke. Uh, We can be really short-sighted just as humans. So when you layer that with the social pressure that comes with financially taxing your neighbors for these huge long-term repairs, and really those repairs should have been paid for over a long period of time, when you are now faced with having to tax your neighbors a huge bill to pay for generations of maintenance expenses, that is a very difficult thing for condo associations to do. And it's understandable to an extent that there isn't really this malicious intent, but it's really just, it's a management issue. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about why condos exist because the article touches on on this a little bit. And I think it's really interesting because the article talks about condos as really an affordability strategy, saying that the legal structure to implement this concept was presented through the 1961 National Housing Act. And uh, this gave individual owners and multifamily buildings the ability to have uh, a more affordable option than owning a single family house. And you know, just to give you a sense of how prominent condos are, more than 10 million Americans live in a condo, and these are managed by 120,000 condo associations, which I had no idea that there were so many condos in the United States. So the intent is pretty clear to me. The desire for co-op housing as an affordability strategy is something that I actually hear quite often in housing advocate circles, people wanting to all band together and actually own the sixplex that they live in or own the small apartment building that they're living in. Unfortunately, the insight about deferred maintenance seems to uncover that affordability of this living situation may really only be provided to the first generation or so of people if those expenses are not being properly accounted for. The people who end up getting left holding the bag in these examples cited were faced with repairs costing you know, upwards of $40 million in some cases. And this could be thousands and thousands of dollars per owner that becomes needed immediately you know, for life safety reasons. So I am skeptical about you know, how you would structure something like this in the future as an affordability strategy. Obviously, doing a condo building as an affordability strategy in a city is a little bit different than the condo structures along the beach in Florida. So they're used in different ways. But but the author does bring up that New York City's labor-funded co-ops have been managing this type of structure for over a century or nearing a century. So that's something that is kind of interesting to me. I wonder if it can be done well and if it can be done well, how it can be done well. Um, The author doesn't expand on that, but I'd really like to learn if the insight from this is that we shouldn't be doing co-op or condo structures as a form of ownership or if there just needs to be a different way of doing this in the future. The thing that sort of I learned that I didn't actually know from this article was how new the condominium is as a legal arrangement, um, that it almost didn't exist before the 1960s. Um, and the origins of it, a couple things really struck me about that. So if we distinguish condos from like collectively owning a building, because I think that existed in the past, the affordability strategy, like if it's just about having affordable housing in a very desirable place, that's a matter like on a, on a land use economics level, that's a matter of 
building up and building more densely. And you see that like only so many people can live on Miami beach with a waterfront view. And if those were all one or two story single family homes, they would be colossally expensive end of story. And like, I live in Florida, I live in coastal Florida. And what, what you see is as you go toward the coast, one story homes, one story homes, you get to the waterfront, 16 story towers because the water view is what people want. And so that land is extremely valuable. It's extremely scarce. You build up. If you're going to talk about an affordability strategy, you're getting whether you're getting it through apartments that you rent or through a co-op or through a condo model, the affordability is coming from packing more housing units onto the same piece of land so that the cost of that extremely expensive land is shared among more people. What's different with the condo is you've got this individual ownership model as opposed to something like you might have a co-op where the co-op association as a corporation owns the building and the residents have essentially very long-term leases that are very hard to sever. And that creates a different set of incentives. I think what you need to do is you need to look at the institution and say, what kind of perverse consequences are going to occur here? What happens with a condo is because it is kind of fee simple ownership of your condo. I mean, you're, you're in a condo association, you pay dues to that organization, but you own your condo. It's pretty much hard for them to, to evict you or foreclose on you. In most states, 80% of the owners in a building would have to agree to sell for the whole building to be sold. And then the other 20% could be forced to sell. But that's a pretty high bar to do any sort of significant redevelopment. Maintenance comes down to the association, which is elected by a vote of these owners. And you're going to have a mix of owners who are, it's their permanent residents, they're invested, they care about the place, they know their neighbors. People who are maybe there a few weeks out of the year. People who are literally just using it as a speculative investment. In coastal Florida, you have a lot of that. You have absentee owners who really, for them, it's an investment. So I think there's kind of a toxic mix there in terms of the incentives that that creates. And what, what I was really struck by in terms of the history of the condo as a structure was that it mirrors the history of a bunch of other federal housing policy interventions in that it's geared almost more at real estate as a driver of the economy as it is at actual affordable residential opportunities. So what happened in 1961, which you mentioned, was that the Federal Housing Administration extended federal mortgage insurance to condominium units. And states very quickly, like all of them, came up with legal frameworks to allow this to happen. And so federal mortgage insurance takes away all the risk on the bank's part for an investment that goes bad. And states have even added on to that. In the state of Florida, where I live, the state has what's called a safe harbor provision that says that if a condominium unit or a unit in an HOA is foreclosed upon and it ownership of it reverts back to the bank, the bank can only be held liable for association fees up to something like 1% of the value of the mortgage. And the rest of it, the rest of any back, any unpaid fees, which, you know, that's what's funding the maintenance on the condo. Those fees are still, it's the, the owner who was foreclosed upon is liable for them. The bank's liability is capped. And like, you can understand why that is. Um, there, there are some reasons to have a policy like that, but what it's created is just this toxic mix of lack of skin in the game where you have federally created this investment product. You've taken away all the risk on the lender's side. So it's no skin off their back to offer a mortgage for this product. It becomes a more appealing investment. 
it's really easy to get a condo in coastal Florida, maybe use it a few a few weeks out of the year, but expect to sell it at a profit after after a few years. And you get a bunch of people who are really disengaged from the question of the long-term fate of this building. So obviously a lot of mismatched um, objectives that are at play here. There's this question that's posed in the article about whether or not this is something that should be legislated around. There's currently state laws that require condo associations to put aside money for reserves, but the amount of reserves is, that is required is really difficult to define and legislate. I'm skeptical that proper maintenance accounting is something that you can really accurately write into law and like force people to do. And it's also kind of too late to come up with laws to like solve this problem. Maybe they could have done that um, in the 1960s, but they didn't do it at that point. And, uh, you know, we're in a different period that you can't just make up laws and then solve the problem. The bill is coming due, right, for these mismanaged properties. I actually, I, I know of people who have been hit with these huge bills and were forced to sell at a loss. Um, and that's likely the progression of this issue for for buildings that have not been maintained over time. As condo associations become aware of these kinds of issues and work to raise money to address them, there are owners that will just fall out and they will sell, they perhaps sell at a loss. And that's a horrible financial outcome for the people who thought that they were buying into an investment. But still, the more important concern is this life safety issue because a failing building will kill people if if it's not taken care of. So it's it's something that, you know, I don't know, I don't know if there is a clear action or path forward other than this kind of natural progression of of people uh, restructuring the ownership and investors potentially buying these owners out and investors that have the capacity specifically that could uh, they could actually uh, afford to fix up the building and then they probably don't become condos after that. They, it probably becomes an apartment building or something like that. I don't know. but But I don't know that there's something that can be legislated around this issue at this point. I'm not an authority on all of the rules around condo associations, and I don't want to pretend to be. I think that if there was a, a silver bullet legislative solution, I feel like we would have heard about it by now. Yeah, um, totally. It's certainly true that, you know, I mean, you can require that these organizations set aside maintenance reserves. You can step up that requirement to what you think is reasonable, but there's a Russian roulette aspect to the whole thing where either the building has a severe defect and is going to collapse or it doesn't and it isn't. And so we, we had a case in Sarasota where I live of an old, one of these older condo towers. This was sort of the, it could have been Surfside. It could have been that tragedy and it wasn't. Um, it's called the Dolphin Tower and it's on our Bayfront and it was built in the 1970s. And they discovered severe structural defects. The building was in danger of collapse. They found this out in 2010. And really the only thing that was different from the Surfside story is there was kind of a heroic president of the condo board who was willing to make the hard calls and be the bad guy. And But there, it was not a happy outcome for a lot of the people in that building. And yet it was probably the best possible outcome in that what happened was all of the owners moved out. The building was completely evacuated. 
it was renovated. Um, and I should say they had a million dollars in reserves at the point at which they discovered these problems, but the repairs were going to cost 18 million. Um, and that's just a gap you can't, you know, anticipate they were nowhere close to having it covered. Um, not through any like abnormal negligence, but just through very typical, like this is a, a, a very typical story of deferred maintenance over a long period of time. All the owners moved out of the building. They got it renovated. A lot of the owners who moved out, they had to keep paying their association fees while they couldn't live there. And they had to pay rent on another residence. Many of them couldn't handle this financially. And many of them sold their units at a steep loss to investors. But the building has been renovated. People live in it today. It didn't fall down. No one died, which is kind of the best case scenario here. I think that they're, you know, um, Chuck at Strong Towns likes to say that um, problems have have solutions, but predicaments have outcomes. And decades worth of deferred maintenance on thousands of buildings all over the country, that is a predicament. That there isn't going to be a neat solution, but it's something we're going to have to deal with. Um, and it's not all that different from our cities having to deal with crumbling pavement and leaking sewer pipes. Yeah, that that's exactly right. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. It certainly is a great example of a predicament that will have outcomes, and the outcomes may vary based on the context and and based on the current owners and the, the current conditions of these buildings. And hopefully there's more buildings that have been taken care of than haven't. Before we conclude today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we have been listening to, reading, watching, anything that's been captivating our time these days. Daniel, so you have been, I understand, busy with the new baby. Have you been up to anything else recently? Uh, up to anything else is relative compared to what it used to be. Um, we did. We, we took a family vacation in, in June and I finally got to read a book. And it's been so long since I've really just gotten to sit down and read a book. Um, and I've been reading one that's been on my list for a long time, uh, A Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solnit. Um, she's a San Francisco writer. She's one of my favorite essayists um, and just kind of a, a moral compass for me in the way she writes about society and the future and the dilemmas that, that grip all of us and um, paradise built in hell. I'm halfway through it now. And it is a um, fascinating and far reaching book about the ways that people band together and self-organize after disasters to meet each other's needs. Um, and how often that results in sort of voluntary communal structures that are way more orderly and effective than you would expect. We've got this narrative that, um, in the aftermath of a major disaster, whether whether natural or whether human caused, that things are going to devolve into anarchy. There's going to be looting. There's going to be rioting. There's going to be violence, um, and that we need a heavy hand from above to restore order in these times. Um, and Solnit turns that narrative on its head and says, actually, if you look at things like the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, if you look at a bunch of sort of the the famous disasters of the past century, what you see is that for the most part people attended to their needs and their neighbors' needs remarkably effectively in these moments. And so it's kind of a strong town story, I think, about bottom-up spontaneous organization. I think it's an optimistic story about human nature. Um, and it's just a great read. 
I love that. And I think that is a great title. <laughs> That's such a compelling title. I I would agree with that the thesis. I actually have a lot of hope for people um, in their ability to actually take care of one another when disasters happen. And I, I mean, there's there's neighborhoods like the neighborhood I live in where people have you know, not really gotten a lot of attention from the city for generations, certainly during the 70s and 80s. And people kind of learn how to take care of each other because of that. And so I feel like that is a very natural conclusion to come to, that people are resilient. And when disasters strike, it's almost like we have like a natural instinct to take care of one another we're social animals. We, yeah. we survived by having that instinct to take care of one another. And yeah. I think that not every time and not in every way, but by and large, that's what humans do. That may be my next book, just because of the title. <laughs> <laughs> um, what have you been up to lately, Abby? Well, I I don't have any books to share, actually. We are in the middle of summer, so we're recording this right now in July. Uh, very hot in the Midwest, obviously, and in most places. So I have changed up my bike routes. I like to bike a lot during the summer, but this is kind of the time where I'm either taking my bike out somewhere and mountain biking in the woods or um, biking along this road called Cliff Drive. It's basically this historic, scenic byway that is connected to the urban fabric of Kansas City, and it's tucked along this limestone cliff. And it, it's like you could be riding on it and feel like you're in a state park or, you know, really secluded from the city. And but you're actually like 500 feet from a house that's sitting on top of the cliff. So it's a really unique street that we have um, in, in our city. And it's part of the original Kessler plan for Kansas City. So I've been riding that a lot lately. It's actually closed down to cars for um, a variety of reasons. I don't really know why. I think it has something to do with maintenance and safety. But um, because it's closed down to cars, it's become this really natural bike ped pathway, maybe unofficially. <laughs> I love it. I've been I've been taking my bike out there and it's like you see people on jogging and walking and other people on bikes. And it's just, it's really nice. And it's, it's quiet, you know, because there's, it's, it's secluded because of the cliffside and it's tucked back in the woods and there's no cars on it. So it's become this really, really nice amenity for the city. I love a nice little urban oasis like that. That sounds great. Yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely a treasure that, is, you know, I think I think the thing that's sad about it is that when it was constructed, you know, that it it was it has all of these really beautiful architectural elements along it, these really beautiful street lights and stairways, and you know, just there's there's fountains that are just really beautiful, and you know, over time, over a hundred plus years, it's it's been neglected, and it's it kind of makes me sad to think that people could put so much effort into building something so beautiful and have no idea that one day it wouldn't be taken care of. So, you know, in a way it is kind of sad, but, but it's still a beautiful road and I'm glad that other people appreciate it. Cool. So thank you so much for joining me today, Daniel. I think we'll leave it at that. My pleasure. 
All right. Well, you have a good weekend and thank you everyone for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks. Bye.